Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Today on Habits and Hustle, we have the one and only Robert Green. Robert is not just a close friend, but he's also the author of numerous New York Times bestsellers, including The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The Laws of Human Nature, The 50th Law, The Mastery, and his newest, newest New York Times bestseller, which actually happened on the podcast, is The Daily Laws. Uh, Robert is just a prolific writer. And in addition to having a strong following within the business world and a deep following in Washington, D.C., Robert's books are hailed by everyone from war historians to the biggest musicians in the world, including Jay-Z, Drake, 50 Cent. Uh, His work is just fantastic. And uh, I really recommend, if you have not read one of his books, to go and get them. Uh, the Daily Laws is a great word to start. It has a lot of, it's a compilation of a ton of his work. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, I'm sure you will. Okay, guys. So today on the podcast, we have a dear friend of mine, Robert Green. Uh, he's been on the podcast a couple, actually two times. Twice. Twice. Know. But one of them I couldn't air because of the, because of the sound. So it was like a whole thing, you by the way. You never aired it? The second one. No, we couldn't because it was like you were sounding like you sounded like. Because it was on the, it was on virtual. You never told me that. I didn't. I did so. I'm sure I did. No, I thought I did. I thought maybe like the, the, the visuals, the, the audio, the video didn't work. Some, something. something was off, which is why we did it. We, we did this. The second one was th- when like Zoom right in the middle of pe- the pandemic. Yeah. You never posted it. It's totally gone. Well, All so, of that brilliance it, and everything it was is totally too. wasted. You guys missed a brilliant podcast. I think I think that we maybe t- took clips of it and put it on, but it wasn't the full episode. We had to like break it up. For sure. Wow. It wasn't the full thing, right, Will? Yeah. Yeah. It was a whole thing. But right. like we tried our best to save. It was a long one too. Cause you always give such amazing nuggets of wisdom. And he's rolling his eyes if you're just listening to this, well, which is true, by the way. Uh, you uh, do. This is also video, right? It's not. It just, is video, yeah, of yeah. course. Well, um, that's that's really sad. I know. I thought I told. I did I tell you. Put all you. that effort into it, and then it's all gone for good. Well, it's not gone for good. We took. We're take. We took snippets, and we posted the snippets of your jewels of information. What was wrong? Was it on my end? I don't. I think. I think it was just bad Wi-Fi, okay. wasn't it? It was an internet issue. It was an internet yeah. issue. You know what it was? To be honest, it was right when everybody had to go virtual, right? And so, so I think yeah, the whole yeah, system yeah. was yeah. completely like, yeah. um, everything was. Everyone was on at the same time, and and the Wi-Fi was a problem for a yeah. little bit. That's yeah. when it happened. I think so. Yeah. But the good news is we have you in person live today for your newest book called The Daily Laws. Yes. Um, I didn't even even tell everyone, just for those of you who don't know who Robert Greene is, either you're living under a rock or um, you haven't been blessed yet by this wisdom, but uh, Robert is legitimately one of the best authors of our time, I feel. He has written uh, The Laws of Human Nature, The 48 Laws of Power, uh, The Art of Seduction, uh, Mastery, which is my one of my personal favorites. And uh, each book is truly like read like it's like an encyclopedia, every single one of them. And they're all 
just massive bestsellers. Uh, and I recommend you guys, if you haven't read these books, definitely pick them all up. But uh, in his newest one, The Daily Laws, he talks, but basically it's concise wisdom for each day of the year, right? Mm -hmm. Is that basically what it is? And they're like digestible life lessons. And each month will center around a different theme. There's power, seduction, persuasion, strategy, self-control, and the list goes on. Mm -hmm. So anyway... Thank you for coming on the podcast Thank again. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Hopefully the audio and the video <laughs> work this time. I so, hope so, too, yeah. because I'm never going to hear the end of it, you I'm will sure. Not. You will not. I know. Your face, by the way, when I said that the second one didn't work out, I swear I, it's priceless. <laughs> oh, my God. Priceless. So let's start with, like, what what makes you such an expert on power, persuasion, seduction, because what has been for those again who don't know, like you've like you've written these like very enormous, you're taking these enormous concepts and like writing legit encyclopedias. Like, how did you become the expert, the go-to person that you are able to do this? Well, it wasn't by plan. You know, it's kind of how you fall into certain things in life. You know, I don't want to go through the entire story of my life, but. Prior to but writing, you will. <laughs> well, I'll make it very brief. Okay. Prior to writing my first book, which I started writing in 1996, if you can believe. Wow. Um, you know, I had been a failed screenwriter, a failed novelist, a failed journalist. And I had had uh, my girlfriend and I counted 60 different jobs at least. And so, you know, that's not any kind of resume for anything legitimate in this world. <laughs> but I can say this, I had seen so many different weird power games. I had a collection of some of the worst bosses you can imagine. I had great stories to tell about that in political games and all kinds of Machiavellian crap going yeah. on in offices. The worst jobs. Um, and I read a lot of books. You know, I read a lot of history. And since I was a kid, I've been a very keen observer of people for whatever reason, I don't know if it's genetic or it's the nature of my my household where I grew up, but I've always been a very keen observer of people picking up their body language, getting a sense of who they really are behind the masks that people mm -hmm. wear. So that doesn't qualify. I don't have a PhD. You know, my father once, God bless him, he passed away in 2000. Mm. He, he, I was starting to write The Art of Seduction. He's going, Robert, what makes you someone who could write a book like that? You don't have a degree in psychology or anything. And I said, well, Dad, I don't know. I'm just going to do it. And if, if it works, if it sells, that means I, I know what I'm talking about. Right. So I don't have any qualifications. I don't have a glittering resume with a PhD from Yale in psychology and human behavior and all this other stuff. It's just a function of... So many years of observing people closely, mm -hmm. not taking their words or their appearances for reality, always trying to analyze what's really going on behind right. them. And a lot reading a lot of books. And then as I wrote my books, obviously this is Daily Laws is my seventh. Um, I learned a lot on the, along the way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do a lot of consulting with some very powerful people in different areas. And I was on the board of directors of a publicly traded company. I've had a tons of experience since the book came out. So my, right. my knowledge has increased. I'm not good at very many things, Jen. I'm actually really bad. I can't fix anything around the house. I'm tone deaf. I can't sing. My dancing sucks. <laughs> I'm good at one thing. The one thing that I do is psychology, figuring out, figuring out people's behavior, 
strategizing and that kind of thing. Well, I love that you said that, first of all, because it's a great uh, parlay into my first question, because uh, you talk about interaction with boldness. And that to me is being bold right there. I, you know, boldness is, is, you know, is my whole entire thing. I wrote, I did a whole TED talk on it. And what you just explained is exactly that. You don't even have a PhD. You're not academically trained to be doing this, but it's something that you're super passionate about and deeply interested in, which kind of makes you really good at doing it, right? Because then you're like constantly learning and practicing and doing it. You just did it. And then it just took on a life of its own. Would you say... um, well, when you, when in your book, that was in the 48 Laws of Power, I think. Interaction that with boldness. Yeah. How did you describe it in the book? What would you say boldness is to you? And would you say how you entered this whole field was your bold move to like change the trajectory of your life? Well, boldness is effective. A lot of the 48 Laws of Power has to do with kind of deception, mm-hmm. I'm afraid to say, and manipulation. Right. And Most of the law, that's what people always say, right? That Not all of them, but But the majority, yeah. No, not even the majority. At least a good portion of them, though. Oh, okay. Um, although you might be right. I don't know. I haven't counted. Um, okay. I haven't counted either. But uh, so boldness has a very particular effect on people. Mm-hmm. It's very, it creates drama, right? Mm-hmm. And we're always, it comes from an, uh, an angle. It's something that's unexpected, mm-hmm. right? So if people expect you to do something bold and outrageous it's not really bold it doesn't have that effect anymore right it has to come from a place of kind of surprise of quietness and then suddenly you enter this with this action and it has this effect on people it's like a almost like a childlike effect this kind of surprise boo wow i'm frightened wow this guy did something that i didn't expect or this woman right right it creates a very powerful response and we are geared as animals. We're human. We're not. We're human, but we're also animals to respond to that kind of signal that seems like power to us. Mm-hmm. It seems like that person, they're concealing even more kind of energy and things behind the scenes. What else can they do? Right. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a dramatic effect. And in the book, I describe one of the great con artists of all time, Count Victor Lustig. And he wanted to create the greatest con of all, which he was going to sell the Eiffel Tower in Paris to a group of industrialists, right? Mm-hmm. You can't think of a bigger con game than that. How could anybody who's selling the Eiffel Tower possibly be conning, possibly be deceiving? It's ridiculous. Right. It has to be true, right? Mm-hmm. And he not only pulled it off once, he went back and pulled it off a second time, right? He kept selling the Eiffel Tower, which he did not own at all. <laughs> You know, and I describe that in there because the bigger you think, the bolder you move, the more it appears true and real. It has real power behind it. So when I wrote the 48 Laws of Power, you know, I'm not someone who loves self-help necessarily. I find a lot of self-help books a little sentimental, a little bit sugary, a little bit too positive. Mm -hmm. I'm not that kind of guy, you know. Right. I think people have a dark side and my experience of power is people can be very controlling, very manipulative. Not all people, but a lot of times they are. Right. There's a kind of a, a, a hidden side to the power game that people don't talk about. So I was going to write a book that exposed all of that, right, mm-hmm. in as direct and strong a manner as possible. I wasn't going to make it kind of an academic book. I wasn't going to disguise it. I was going to make it like a straight shot of whiskey. I was going to make it r- really right. right to the gut, right? I was going to hold anything back. 
And so I think that's sort of what makes it kind of a cult. People are very interested in it, even if you hate it or you're, you're kind of frightened by it. It has this power, right? Because I was so I went so strong in the idea. Also, I think it was so honest and raw, and I th think that maybe and you, you're the expert, but I feel that sometimes in human nature is to repel something that is so honest, right? Because it makes people look at themselves maybe in a different way, and that's why it hits people that way. Because I know when I would see people like reviewing it, people, you're right. It was it's such a obviously it's such a cult hit that people either are obsessed and love it and like live by it or they're like turned off because it's like it's mean or it's not like it's it's showing people in a bad light but that doesn't mean it's not true just because right. it's showing people in a bad light do you know what i mean yeah don't you feel like you you, you hear that sometimes like oh it's oh, so negative or definitely well a lot of people um, don't want to face this aspect of, of human nature. Yeah. They want to believe that people are basically good and kind. And I'm not denying that there is a very good positive qualities in most people and that we are in, at heart, you know, there's a lot of instincts in us that are, we're co-op, we work with other people, mm -hmm. you know, we want to please, we want to get along. So I'm not saying everything is dark right. and negative, but there's an aspect, particularly in offices, particularly in business, particularly, you know, it's weird. After I wrote The 48 Laws of Power, you know, when I wrote it, I had no idea if it would be successful or not, right? Because it's a very, yeah. part of the boldness of it is it's different than any other book you've ever seen visually. Right. With things on the side, with all kinds of little pieces of design work in the centers, you know, images yeah. and things like that. It's a very strange book and the structure is strange. It could have been a, a failure. But I remember my first book tour back in the days when you had book tours. Right. What's that? Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really? I mean, um, I would go to like offices in Washington, D.C., bureaucracies. And I remember one day I was at the Voice of America doing an interview. And this woman came running up to me, very kind of quiet. And she whispered, She goes, You wrote the 48 Laws of Power. Go, yes, I did. She goes, you have described so perfectly what's going on here at the Voice of America. Did you work in a bureaucracy? <laughs> no, I've never worked in anything like that. Then the same thing happened. I went to San Diego to give a talk for a nonprofit organization. Woman said, "You have described perfectly what goes on in nonprofit organizations." You know. Yeah. And then since then, you know, athletes were telling me or rappers because it got right. very popular in rappers. So in realms where money and power exist the power games where the stakes are high these games are being played it's as real as you can get yeah you know? so what would be in all the on all the different industries that you worked in would you say that the entertainment industry was the most cutthroat was the most manipulated like of of all well i don't know because i haven't worked in washington but i would say mm, you know, or in politics um, and i have glimpses at what it's like in 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 sports but um I guess that's kind of entertainment. But um, the music business, uh, from what I heard secondhand through 50 mm -hmm. and through Drake and people that I've known, is probably the most cutthroat of all. And Hollywood would be close second. Wow. Um, and, you know, the reason is, is that the metrics for success are a little bit vague, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, box office and the amount of money you made on a film is 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 the key element here, mm -hmm. but um, 
once you get where there's so much money involved, right? You're mm -hmm. talking millions and millions and millions of dollars are at stake with each film. And people have these incredible egos. They yeah. all think that they're artists, that they're great, that they're brilliant. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the actors, the director, the producer, the writer, the, you know, <laughs> yeah. all along down the line, they all have these really large egos, right? right? So you put all that together in this one pot and stir it around. Incredibly amazing, complex power games are being played. And when I worked in Hollywood, I saw some of that. The music industry is even a little bit more intense because the money that you make from one person, one artist or, or, or a band is so astronomical, right? Yep. And the whole game is how do we exploit that artist as much as we can and get everything out of them? Right. Now, that game is changing now with, with YouTube and the Internet and everything. Right. But um, from what I gather, the music business is probably the darkest, most Machiavellian business of all. Yeah, I worked in that business for many years. You did? Uh-huh. I used, to, I used to be at BMG Music, and really? then I came to L.A. because it was a job. I went from uh, BMG, and then I worked for Immortal Records here, which is wow. part of Sony. So, yeah. So why do you think it's like that? I think, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think when, and I think Hollywood's also very similar. I think when you have so much money and power and so many people want to be in that business and the barrier to entry isn't very difficult, right? right. Like there's no qualification, right? right? It's just like who could be the boldest, the baddest, the, the, the most, you know, conniving or as aggressive. Then it's, it, it breeds a certain type of energy, in my opinion. And you're right. Like look at the Britney Spears situation, right? Like she was, she's a, she's a moneymaker. So they're going to try to get, and funnily enough, I worked on the Britney stuff. Um, but you worked on the documentary. No, no, no. I worked on when Britney's first album came out, oh. it was like hit the baby hit me one more time. Wow. That was a jive records under the BMG umbrella. So that was the album I was working on, but when it became a hit, like everything became all about her everything was focused on her all the money went to her the amount of people around her and then like it's no wonder that this has happened with her now but i think you're right i think that's that's really more about it it's it's so it looks it's very enticing to the outside world and it looks super glamorous and you see all the money and the bling right, and everything right. that it attracts so much attention which then makes it look very much that's the whole, you have everything in there. You have seduction, power, everything, strategy, how to stay yeah. on top, how to get on top, how yeah. to be on top. Yeah, yeah. So that's my opinion too. So yeah. that's why it's actually true. You talk about then despising the free lunch on, in, in that book as well. What does that even mean? Not liking to, like, I thought we all like to have free lunch, right? Go out for lunch, right? What do you mean? Well, the idea is basically anything that's worth having is worth paying for. Mm -hmm. So when people come up to you and they're going to give you something for free, like they're going to offer services to you for free mm -hmm. just because they like you or whatever, you better believe that they're expecting something out of you. They're not going to announce what they're expecting. Yes. Maybe three weeks, two months down the line, they're going to ask a favor from you. You're going to be a bit surprised by it. You weren't expecting it. You thought you were just doing, they were just doing this because they liked you. Right. And then you're going to feel obligated, right? They mm. did this for free. Well, I better do what they asked for, right? Right. So when people, money is not just, not just numbers. Money is an indication of some basic psychology, right? So if people, 
If they're not willing to offer their services for a price, that means there's something else going on, right? Right. Because everybody is basically wants money on some level, okay? The other side of it is, is that you want to be using money in as generous a manner as possible, okay. right? Mm -hmm. So if, if you're trying to nickel and dime people, and instead of they want $10,000, you try to get them down to $7,500 or $5,000, you'll get maybe what you want, but they're not going to be, their heart isn't going to be into it. They're going to be resentful, right? Right. So being generous and paying for things is a sign of power. It's a sign that you're confident. And it's a sign that you're generous in spirit in other ways as well. And it's going to pay off in the end. So look at money as something almost like a bit of psychology, right? And by always trying to get things for free or get things for less, it reveals something about you that's not very powerful, that shows some basic insecurities. And beware of people that are offering you things for free. I mean, I have that happen all the time. Yeah. Like, give me an example. Well, things I can't necessarily talk about because they're ongoing, but I get a lot of people coming to me who want to do research. I'll be your research. You don't have to pay me. I just love it so much. Right. Right. I'll be your assistant. You don't have to pay me because I just want to be there and see how, how books are made, et cetera. No, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit very suspicious of that when people say that kind of thing. Right. This is agenda usually attached that you just, you know, the agenda because yeah. you're obviously astute in that way. But yeah, no, I, I, I hear that. And it's interesting because if you really think about it, people who truly have power, like not just like, like superficial nonsense power, people who have that, they always pay the bill. They always pay for things. They don't, they don't want to they don't want to they feel uncomfortable taking those things for free but there's a big difference between like it being authentic and being kind of again it's like what you talk about like people wear masks they don't really show you who they really are um and so but i do i think that's actually very accurate too because of that reason uh when so when we talk well now that we're on that topic when you talk about people wearing masks and what we're saying and to what you're saying, be wary of a free lunch. You have to also be wary of people when you meet them, right? Because you don't really know sometimes what their true intention is. How can somebody um, learn how to, how to, I guess, how would I say this? Basically, how can someone really learn to read someone's real character, their true character, not what they're just showing you, not their salesperson that they're presenting to you? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to learn something very basic, which is that you can't take appearances for reality. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy for us. There's something in our animal nature where we pay attention to how people look. We pay attention to mm -hmm. their words, to the what they give us immediately, right? Mm -hmm. And people learn over the years, you know, everybody, myself included, mm -hmm. how to present a particular facade that sort of shows our best side, right? True, yeah. So, um, Teach yourself in all situations, whether you're hiring somebody, whether you're meeting somebody for the first time, whether it's somebody in your office that's, that's new there or where it's in a romantic relationship, whatever, that there is something else going on behind the, the mask, the face that they're giving you, the smiles and everything else. They're not telling you everything, right? Right. Because that's just human nature. If we were always honest and brutally honest, Nobody would ever have any friends. The whole world would fall apart. <laughs> right. 
we learn to be polite. We learn basic things about etiquette. We, you know, we don't tell people exactly what we think about the clothes they're wearing, the screenplay they wrote, the hair that they, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, so get over the idea that you can judge people by their appearances. It's almost a cliche, but it's built into our nature to immediately judge people, to have snap judgments like that. Okay? Right. So get the idea is that you have to get is that you have to decipher what's really going on behind the mask that people wear, right? And the main thing, oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. That's your phone? It's my phone. I'm just gonna shut it off. Where do you want to grab Who's it? it say? It says Michael Carlisle. It's my agent. I'll call him later. Okay. Hi, Michael. <laughs> he could be part of the podcast. Um, anyway, um, so you're like Sherlock Holmes. You're like a detective. You're going to pick up all the little clues that people give out because right. people give out clues as to who they are, as to what they're thinking, right? So you're not going to judge on what they say or what's on their resume. So what you're looking for is who they are deep inside. I call it their character. The word character comes from the ancient Greek. It means something deeply carved, mm -hmm. carved very deep. So character is something that's carved so deep inside people from their early childhood, from their genetics, that it, it causes them to do things that they're not even aware of unconsciously. Right. Certain patterns, it defines who they are, right? Mm -hmm. And some people have strong character and some people have weak character. A strong character is somebody who can work well under stress, who can take criticism, who can work well in a team situation, right? Who can kind of subsume their ego and work, get along with other people, et cetera. Those are signs of a weak character, a strong character. People who are weak can't take any kind of criticism, right? Mm -hmm. So you hire somebody or you get in a relationship with someone who presents this charming, sweet, angelic, nice, pleasing front, right? And then you discover three or four or five months later that they that they have this weak character, right? They crumble as soon as they're stressed. Mm -hmm. You can't criticize them. Do you know how hard it is to work for somebody, work with somebody, or to have a relationship with someone who can't take any kind of criticism? Yes, it's horrible. It's Awful. horrifying, right? Yeah. So you need to be able to judge these things before you get involved. And people give off all kinds of signs. So you want to look at their body language, at their nonverbal behavior, because a lot of what humans are communicates through things that are subtle. It's communicated through the eyes, how the mouth, how we smile when the eyes light up, how um, the tone of voice that we have, our body posture. So people can be talking to you and being very friendly and nice and smiling, but there's a kind of tenseness in them right. that indicates that it's not completely sincere, that there's something going on, right? Or they're standing, talking to you, and their feet are kind of angled away, and they're kind of looking a lot in the another direction. They seem to be engaged, but they're actually showing signs that they're not really that interested in you. Right, right? exactly. Or when you talk to someone, they're looking over your shoulder to see what, who the next person is they can speak with. Right. Right. Can someone a, change their character? Can they get better? Or that's kind of ingrained in who they are? Well, it's so ingrained that basically I say you can't really change it. I mean, there are things. So some people are born introverts and some people are born extroverts, right? right? I happen to be born an introvert. And I have some extrovert tendencies. Okay. But I'm essentially an introvert. Right. 
There's no way I can ever change that. It's impossible. I can, I'm not going to become an extrovert. Right. Because it's my nature. It's what I like. It's what I'm comfortable with. Right. I don't know how you're going to get over that. It's either a function of genetic, and there are people who believe that that is a genetic component, or it's something from my very early childhood. But I have no control over it. There are other qualities that you have really no control over. But the best thing that you can do is to be aware of them. Right. right. So to be aware of your patterns, to be aware of who you are, and to like use that and make that your strength and kind of lean into it and kind of accentuate it or find a way to use your own character in a better way as opposed to denying it and kind of repressing and trying to tell yourself you're somebody that you're really not. Right. So is that why you became a writer, right? Because like you kind of had self-awareness to know what you were pretend, what, what, like kind of like what you like to do. Are you more, if you're an introvert, do you, you personally, do you like to spend time alone? Do you, are you more, you're more on the quiet side? Uh, is that kind of like, how did you, how did you kind of orchestrate or kind of curate your life to fat, to, to kind of match your, I guess, ma match your character? Well, a writer's life is basically being alone a lot, you know, well, for four hours a day or so, right. You write for yeah. like that time. Cause you always, yeah. when I'm on the phone with you, you're like, I got to write now it's four o'clock. Or... Yeah, I'm, I'm a total fascist when it comes to that. <laughs> That's because, good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I, you kind of find your way to what works mm -hmm. if you're, if you're successful in life, if you reach your goals and, um, you know, it's not that I don't like being with people. I can be very social and yeah. I like being with people and I like interacting with them. But deep down inside, ultimately what gives me the most satisfaction mm -hmm. is being alone with my thoughts and using my thoughts and creating something out of them. So you can go too far in both directions. So if I'm social all the time, I start to feel a little bit empty, like something's missing. But if I'm alone all the time, that, that also can get depressing. But I, I lean a little bit more towards that. But an introvert like myself, it becomes very accustomed to watching people, to observing them, to not necessarily participating so much, but being watching them and figuring out what's really going on. Most writers are essentially introverts. I think it's also the nature of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have someone like a Hemingway who was very much out there in the world and was you know, fighting wars and all this other stuff. But he admits himself that he was very introverted, very shy person. It's mm -hmm. how he kind of overcame it. So the nature of stepping back and observing people and not participating is kind of the essence of being a writer. And it's sort of, um, it's sort of who I am, I guess. Well, I was going to say a couple of things, you know, like uh, sometimes you could be, you know, it, you could be an extrovert. You can seem like an extrovert, but really be an introvert in like yeah. the, at the, at, at heart. Right. Yeah. Um, as because it's kind of like you were, you, you had to like kind of for whatever reason. Uh, so you can change certain character traits, but other ones are much more ingrained. You're saying, right? Like if you're an introvert, you can kind of learn a little bit to be more extroverted and vice yes. versa. Um, but like what what kind of character traits are more in your in your opinion are the ones that are like super like ingrained in who you are? Like, is it the is it like your value system? Is it like what you gravitate to naturally? Like some people could be like kinder naturally, sweeter naturally. Yeah, those are kind of basic things. Definitely. I mean, uh, it kind of comes out in your life through the patterns that you can see going mm -hmm. on. It takes like years 
it sort of shows up like when you're five or six, you may not be so clear as to what the, the character is, but over time it kind of plays itself out. But certain very basic qualities like how you relate to people, whether you, when, when you see a stranger coming, whether you're excited about someone new to meet, whether you want to go hide and, you know, these are yes. things that kind of say totally. who you are. Um, do you believe deep down inside that you can change, that you can learn new things, that you can improve your skill? Or do you think that basically you are who you are, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not talking about your character. I'm talking about your knowledge and your skill base. That's more so self-awareness though, right? Like it's super important to be self-aware. Isn't that of who you are? Can that, some, and some people are just naturally better at that than others, right? Do you think you can get better? Can people can learn to be more self-aware? Well, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't write any of my books because that's sort of the whole point of the books is that you become more self-aware. So yeah, you definitely can. That's the whole game. If, you, if you're able to become more aware of who you are and what, how you view the world, and what you think about other people and how you see yourself in, in, in the whole social game, then you're going to gain power and success in this world. So awareness is the key to the whole thing. Of, of everything. Have you, like, how have you changed since writing all of these books and all the research that you've done and all everything else? Like, have you seen yourself change at all? Through well, I've aged. I mean, <laughs> barely. You still <laughs> oh, look 29 to me. I slowed down. <laughs> I had a stroke. Well, that's um, but, but you're doing fantastic. I'm happy yeah, to, to yeah. report to people. You would never know by looking at you. You've done an extraordinary no. job. But that's, no. but no, it's true. Robert had, so how long was a stroke ago? Like Three years ago. Three years ago. And this is, but this is a testament to mindset, right? And extraordinary like discipline, right? You talk all about discipline in your books, the amount of discipline and mindset that you have to kind of do to get from there to where you are now, is really extraordinary. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, what do you do? Like you work out every day, Tell, say, how, say your habits, because your habits are extraordinary. Well, um, you know, it's, so I had a, a certain sort of life before the stroke, which now in retrospect was a really good life. Yeah. I would swim like three times a week, and I'm talking long distance swimming. I would hike up into the hills where I live, beautiful hikes, or I would bicycle, mountain biking, and I would also do Pilates and yoga and that kind of thing every single day. My girlfriend will test, I could be sick with the flu, and I still will do some kind of workout every single day. And then the stroke happened, and all of that got thrown away, right? Yeah. Can't swim, can't get on a bicycle, can't hike, can't do anything really. And I, but I'm, I'm like an aerobic junkie. Yeah. If I'm not getting aerobic exercise, I feel so depressed. Yeah, right? it I was, agree. keeps me alive, keeps me happy. So to have that suddenly taken away from me was very powerful. And one month after the stroke, where I couldn't walk, so I was in a wheelchair, I was finding ways to do my aerobic exercise. I had this little foot pedal thing where I, where I could sit in the wheelchair and pedal my feet and get my heart rate going. Yeah, um, so I found ways to, to, to do it, but I'm so determined to get back to being able to hike, you know, because I had a habit of when I was uh, writing books and I would get blocked, which would happen quite often. Like I couldn't figure something out. I would go take a hike up into the hills, these beautiful walks, the sun was setting. I'd be so happy. I'd immediately figure out what I needed to write. I'd rush home and I'd have, and I can't do that. 
Yeah. And it makes writing so hard for me, right? Because I'm st stuck in my room. It's kind of dark. I can sit in my garden, but still, you know, so I'm so motivated to be able to hike again, to swim again, to bicycle again, that I'm working two, two, at least two hours a day, you know? So I have a special bicycle that allows me to go up into the hills and then I'll come home and I'll go on the treadmill later on, or I do these, I have a, two therapists that I'm working with. So every single day I'm doing it. And the progress has been so slow. You have no idea. Because you know Jen is somebody who does a lot of exercise. If you haven't done anything for a while and you start lifting weights, in two weeks you're noticing incredible results. Mm -hmm. You're feeling great. I could spend two months, even two years, not notice any kind of change. It's so subtle, right? Mm -hmm. People around me say you're walking better, but it doesn't feel like that in my body. I'm still kind of staggering. So I've had to, I've learned a lot about myself and, and since I've had this happen, I learned my weaknesses. I've learned my own limitations, things that aren't so good about me. Like some of my nature being so driven is actually a negative in this situation. I should be a little more accepting of myself. I should be a little, you know, more compassionate and not get fr so frustrated with who I am. So I'm learning a lot. I'm get, it's kind of like a, a humility exercise. I'm learning, you know, what I'm not good at and what, what my weaknesses are. But don't you feel it's because of your drive and your determination that's making you and getting you to the place? Like I know even though you don't see the progress like I would, let's say, for you, but... Isn't it because of those those weaknesses that Definitely. that you're also doing so well and you're so disciplined and you're still working out every day and you're determined to hike again and you're determined yeah. to do that stuff? Yeah, of course. It would be terrible if I didn't have that and if I just sat around. I mean, therapists told me they have patients yeah. who who just don't do anything, right? Yeah. And then, you know, and, and then they, they still complain and, and all that. So, yeah, that's helping me a lot and also being driven to write my next book and being disciplined. But I should be, I get very, very frustrated with myself. I get angry with myself. Like, why can't, after all of this work, and I'm still walking in this funny way, I'm still, have no balance, I'm still staggering. And, you know, like simple things like coming, before coming here, getting dressed can take me 20 minutes. Right. You, you know, and you, you just, why? Is there something wrong with me? And if I just relaxed more. So I'm doing a form of therapy now that's based on Feldenkrais. And it's, the idea is that tenseness in the body, which we all have, creates all of our problems, right? right. We use muscles that we don't need to use, right? We tense, we use our chest muscles when we don't need to use them. We use our back muscles when we don't need to use them to walk certain muscles you can you need to use right. to be efficient and others don't but you use too many things you use your shoulders when you don't need to right so i have so much tension in my body from all of these things if i just let go of it i probably would have recuperated i'd be further along in my progress than i am now is that what the doctors even said no no doctors said that but the the therapist the, this feldenkrais person i'm seeing she's she's basically saying that that Getting hard on myself. The brain wants to feel like it can do things. Right. If it starts to feel like it can't do something, if it gets frustrated, it gives up. So you want these little triumphs in your life. You want these little things 
tell the brain, and I talk about this in all of my books. That's what discipline does, gives to you. Every day you see a little bit of progress and the brain goes, wow, that's great. I can do it. I'll do more. Right. Right. And I need I need to have more of that. It's interesting because um, I'm not a big believer in like motivation, right? The word motivation, arbitrary. Uh, and, and you actually talk about this in, in the mastery a little bit about the fact that uh, the best type of like b- way to build confidence. What is it? Hold on a second. The best way to build confidence and uh, be motivated is to like to is is basically to learn new skills and to practice and get good at something, right? Right. Um, so, oh, wow, that's a great way to even talk about this. Uh, by the way, when did you write Mastery? What was the what was the order? Did you do it after Law of, of Human Nature? Or no, no. I, so I wrote. 48 Laws, Art of Seduction, 33 Strategies of War. I did the book 50th Law with 50 Cent and then Mastery. Mastery came out in, I think, 2013. Oh, wow. That long ago. Yeah. Um, Wow. So then how would you say, okay, we talk about, so how would you feel that people should, can really build true confidence? Not like, like, you know, surface confidence by like, I am, believe, you know, I'm great. Right, right. I know what you mean. Like, you know what I mean? Like, believe it, achieve it. I mean, like true like confidence that's like deep within themselves you know to feel that they can do this to have the determination the discipline well i wrote mastery to educate you in what i think is the process that will lead you to that kind of confidence that kind of power and creativity so you have to go through the process if you try and skip steps if you're impatient if you think there are shortcuts forget about it don't even try you should read it (laughs) (laughs) about what no i'm saying about your situation so you get like you get frustrated oh yeah you're right you're right i should read my own material yes um so the first thing is you have to be on the correct path you have to have chosen the right career the right the things that you're interested in right Mm -hmm. so if you're trying to learn something that it doesn't really suit you because you were told to learn it mm-hmm. by your parents or your boss or whomever, your heart's not in it and you're not really going to learn very well. You're not going to learn quickly because you're not paying attention. Right. And what will happen is you'll suffer a series of failures. You won't make progress quite quickly enough and you begin to tune out and you begin to lose confidence in yourself. Right. right? And you, it, it's very shocking how that can happen. You can be in your 20s and you think you're doing really well. You've chosen to be a lawyer because that's what you, this money is. People told you to be a lawyer. You went through law school. You got great grades. You're in a good law firm. And then suddenly, like 31, 32, it's not really working out too well. What's going on here? You start getting distracted. You start, you know, drinking or whatever. You start doing other things to distract yourself. And then you're getting kind of bored with it. And then things can start spiraling downward in some ways, right? Because your heart isn't really in it. It isn't something you didn't choose the right career path. So if you don't choose the right career path in some way, it's not like you have to figure out exactly what you want. But there has to be an overall direction, a purpose for you. Mm -hmm. If you have no purpose, if you're just choosing anything just to make money, then you're never going to learn in the proper way. And you'll maybe have little moments of confidence, but eventually it's not on a solid enough foundation. So that's the key to everything. If you master that, a lot of things will fall into place. First, you have to figure out what it was that you were destined to create in this world. Okay. And then once you have that, once you've hit upon the general direction of your life, right, you you go on this kind of adventure 
you start learning, you take different jobs, you explore different um, places to work, different skill sets, and you learn. And as you learn slowly, and because you're excited and you have a sense of hope and possibility, you're in your 20s and you can imagine in your 30s, you're going to be doing something interesting and great. You're going to have these little bits of triumphs, these little victories, month by month or year by year. You're going to actually, people will be will tell you things and you'll actually make something or do something on a smaller scale. Right. It will give you confidence in yourself. You learn this process and you you probably, I tell people a lot of times, you learned it when you were a child, hopefully. And, then, and if you're a parent, you want to give your child that sense. So... You're told to play the piano. You don't really like the piano, okay? But you start practicing it and you get kind of good at it. And then it starts getting more of kind of fun and then it's sort of interesting. And you learn that the more you stick with something and you master it to some degree, it, the more fun it becomes. And so you learn that there's you have to have patience in this, lot, in this world, right? Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes when you had something like that in your childhood, it kind of is something you can always fall back on. But basically, choosing the right career path, being emotionally engaged with your work, and being disciplined, and learning as many skill sets as you possibly can, then your confidence is on a solid foundation, right? Right. And then you will have failures in life. I've had failures. Even after the success of my books, I had little moments of failure. Like what? Well, um, I've described it before. I don't know if I described it with you before, but... Um, I was doing the 50th law with 50 cent, right? Yeah. We had a, a deal with Simon and Schuster and I wrote the book. I was kind of right. I wrote a lot of it and I wasn't getting a very positive response about it from people. And that's very unusual for me because people usually love what I write. I was kind of shocking and people would kind of be polite. So yeah, it's, it's good. But I knew deep down that it wasn't connecting. And then Simon and Schuster basically canceled the project. They dropped out. They said, sorry, they sold, told us, you're too late in delivering it. But really, they just didn't like what I was creating. It was, a, it was like a, a pretty shattering moment because I've always thought I knew how to figure things out. And essentially, we got on board a new editor from, a new, from HarperCollins. So they dropped you to go find another publisher? Yeah, to find another publisher. It was wow. dead. And it would have been humiliating. I'm Publicity, I'm hired, 50, somewhere in 50 cent, and the book doesn't come out. You know, it could have been the end of my career. Wow. So we found. What did he say when this was happening? He was, I don't remember. He, he, he wasn't that engaged. I mean, he, he was, you know, he, he, he was excited by what I had written, but he's not the best judge of these things. Right. Okay. So anyway, I actually don't really remember what he was saying. To okay. be honest with you. But we bought on this guy, Bob Miller, HarperCollins. And um, he said, Robert, the problem with the book that you wrote is, it's too much 50 and we need more of you in it. And I had been kind of timid and I was deferring to the celebrity and I was trying to please him. I thought this is what the book should be. It should be about with 50s, all his thoughts and all his experiences. <laughs> and Bob Miller said, no, Robert, it needs to be more, there needs to be more of you in it. That's what people want. Okay, so, okay, all right, fine. I'll, I'll redo it, I'll figure it out somehow. And he said, all right, that's the good news. The bad news is you have eight months to do it. And that meant eight months to completely figure out the new way of writing it, the new theme, the new structure, and then to have all the research done and write the whole book. You know, there's no way I can do it. 
Yeah. How long do you normally work on a book for? Years. years. Like years. How, how long was this one? Like 48 Laws was how many years? That Just, was only two because I was young. That was your young. But human nature is five. five. So eight months. Oh, my so God. like, um, but it was like, you know, what I call I was on death ground. It's either I succeed or something really bad is going to happen. And I ended up pulling it off. But that was my moment of failure. Like since I've had success, that was my first real experience something that I would call failure. So the point is, you're going to have those inevitably in life, no matter how brilliant you are. Steve Jobs, our icon mm -hmm. of being an entrepreneur, he had massive, massive failures. He was basically fired from Apple. He was in the wilderness throughout the 90s. He started a company called Next, yeah, which was course. pretty much a, a, a disaster. A loser company, yeah. He got hired back by Apple and things were kind of grim then. And then he had a rebirth, but he knew failure. Everybody who's ever been successful, your most famous rock star, your greatest athletes, they've all known failure, right? Totally. But when you have that bedrock of you, you're doing what you do, love, you're excited by it, you're learning it, you've developed skills, you've had moments of triumph before, you will bounce back faster from that failure than someone else who doesn't have that. Because it all is a matter of how quickly you can bounce back from failure and look at yourself and say, I failed here because I did this, 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 and this. I'm going to change that next time. I'm going to do something different, right? Right. People who have no real confidence, what's the first thing they do when they fail? They blame other people and they never learn from the situation. So you have learned over the course of your time as you've gained skill to reassess yourself, to analyze yourself and to say, this is what you did right. This is what you did wrong. Anyway, the confidence is kind of like building a cathedral. Slowly, the foundation. And then if things crumble a little bit, you can build it, keep building it back up and up and up because you're based on this foundation, which is the love of your work and you're following the path that you were meant to follow. More from our guests, but first a few words from our sponsor. So there's no messing around when it comes to my hair and there is no one size fits all. I have curly, long, thick hair. I can't be using the same product as someone with very thin, fine hair, right? And that's why I am so happy that I found pros because they have a personalized, customized product routine that I just like live by. I can honestly say I've never been more in love with my hair. They make custom hair care that's super effective because it's really personal to what your hair actually needs. They use all natural ingredients with proven results. And when I tell you they customize a program, they customize the program. You have to take a quiz and they ask you questions that you would never even think of. How often you exercise, like what your day is like. I mean, they're not leaving anything out. So even what you eat is one of the questions. I mean, it was amazing, but I got to tell you, it really works. My hair gets super frizzy if I'm not careful. And since I've been using pros, there, there I think it's the custom, it's a curl cream that is just the bomb. So I'm telling you guys, you have to take this quiz. Pros is this healthy hair regime and it has your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash hustle. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash hustle for your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off. I'm telling you, you won't be disappointed. And now to our next sponsor. 
Entrepreneurs are always on the lookout for effective new techniques and ideas to level up their capabilities. But sometimes, as optimized as we want our personal and professional lives to be, it's our tech that holds us back. In this age of remote work, that has never been more true. Introducing Samsung's Galaxy Z Fold 3 5G, a powerful foldable device that is opening up a new world of mobile productivity, giving you greater flexibility to get business done. The Galaxy Z Fold is not just a phone. Open it out and it becomes a tablet with an edge-to-edge 7.6-inch screen. Connect it wirelessly to a smart monitor or a TV and it delivers a PC-like computer experience. You can even flex the Galaxy Z Fold 3 so it stands upright on its own while you video conference hands-free. In tablet mode, you can use multi-active window to work across three apps simultaneously. An optimized life deserves an optimized mobile device. With Galaxy Z Fold 3, entrepreneurs get a three-in-one powerhouse designed to make multitasking easy and seamless at work, at home, and everywhere in between. Learn more at samsung.com slash Galaxy Z for work. That's samsung.com slash Galaxy Z for work. How does someone find what their real path is? I think a lot of people get stuck in the at the start, right? They don't know. They don't know if they should go left, right, yin, yang. Like that's where everyone, a lot of people really the stop is in that start. Yeah. So are you tell are you saying then people should just try a lot of new things no. and okay so to to kind of learn what they're good at or you try a lot of different things without any idea of what you're doing and you're going to waste so much time and. You might hit upon the right thing, but it, you may not ever your whole life. Right. So that's not the way to do it. No, I mean, I back in the day when I had time, I did consulting with people because I was the number one question. Robert, I wrote your book, but I don't know what my life's task is. I don't know where. I'm not criticizing. It's very common. I had it too. Oh, 100%. So, I, I laugh because I think that's, a, that's probably the b- biggest question you get, right? Yeah. Well, it was back then. What do I do with my life? Yeah, 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 like how do I find my life's task? I don't know. And so if I did the consulting with them, I, we would go through a process. That's a process that I tell people about. And it's in the book, actually. But essentially, we try and look at the signs of what is genuinely excites you, what makes you a, diff- what makes you a unique person. Begin from this proposition You are born as one individual that has never occurred before in the history of mankind in the universe and will never, ever again exist the same way, right? You are unique. Your DNA will never be replicated. It is one of a kind. Your parents, your upbringing is one of a kind. No one else will have that. You were born a unique individual, okay? That uniqueness, who you are, is the source of your power, right? Mm -hmm. You discover that. And everything will fall into place, but it's hard to find it. It's hard to find what makes you unique, what makes you different. So that's the question we're tackling now. And okay, so you have to kind of go back and and dig a little bit. So there's a great book that I always recommend to people. It's kind of academic, but it's good, called The Five Frames of Intelligence by a man, I believe, named Howard Gardner. And his thesis, I think he's a neuroscientist, something like that, or a psychologist. His thesis is that there are five different kinds of intelligence. We think of intelligence as being just kind of intellectual, like an Einstein. Mm -hmm. But he says 
There is um, kinetic intelligence, which has to do with the body. There is pattern intelligence, which has to do with music and math. There's like um, verbal intelligence, which has to do with words and writing, on and on and on. Five, and one is a social form of intelligence, okay? And, and the brain has these different proclivities. His book says, you were born with one of these frames of intelligence. You might have a second one that you can lean towards, but there's one essential frame that defines who you are. That is in a very basic way, tells you something very, very powerful about who you are. Whether it's something physical that you're drawn to, dancing, sports, activity, or whether it's something having to do with numbers and patterns and how things fall into line like that, mm -hmm. or that's to do with people and getting in, into, in, you know, interacting with people in social situations, or that has to do with writing and words, etc. I'm leaving one of them out. I can't remember. It tells you something so elemental about yourself. You have to know that. You have to know which one you're, you're geared towards. So we go through a process of looking at your childhood looking at the things that you were drawn to before your parents and teachers and peers intervened, things that excited you when you were five years old, six years old. So people will say, I can't remember, Robert, I can't remember. We dig and we dig and we dig, and I'm very good at that process. I find indications and things that they don't even remember about, right? Wow. Um, and then we How kind do you of, dig? Give me an example, what do you do? Well, I, I look for key moments in their childhood where something happened that excited them, right? You know, I can remember myself um, a moment when I was seven years old, I think, and I was in elementary school and the teacher put up the word on the blackboard back in the days when we had blackboards, right. carpenter. And she said, okay, class, see how many words you can spell out of the letters carpenter. And the winner, you know, gets us some kind of prize. I was like, whoa, I was so enchanted by that game. <laughs> words and letters and figuring out how many words you could get out of one word. I, to this day, I can remember how excited I remember I got ant and a few others. And I, I, I think I ended up winning the prize there, but it was a sign oh, of wow. how words fundamentally obsessed me from a very early age. Right. Wow. That's um, interesting. So you also find things that you were asked to do that you didn't find interesting. So you were a girl and they wanted you to learn ballet and you weren't interested in that ba ballet because you were more thoughtful. You were more in your head. So I'm trying to find basic things. Are you in your head? Are you in your body? Are, where, where is your mind at? And there are signs. There are always signs. We build it up and we go, okay, let's go on to high school and, and subjects that you're learning and things that, that kind of really, really got you excited and things that you hated. Because things that you hate are very eloquent signs, right, mm. of, of who you are. And then we kind of find, all right, when you see something online or, or, or in a newspaper or whatever that really interests you, that you have to read it, that it's a subject that just thrills you, what is that? Is there something like There inevitably is a subject that you, you're so drawn to that you want to learn more about it, right? Right, 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 okay? right. So we're building up little clues here and there and there and there, and we're kind of figuring out an overall path, all right? Really, it's music, okay? I see a through line here. It's music, and I can figure out the signs of that, right, mm -hmm. from very early on. And, and I know from that book that 
the signs of what makes someone uh, uh, basically have that kind of frame of intelligence. Right. It's not just the obvious things. All right. Let's figure out a way for you now to follow that. That's practical. That will end up in a kind of career. How can we explore and figure out what aspect of music you were meant to be in, et cetera. And you go through this with, with, with your clock, with people who hire you, like as a, yeah. to get to that point. So for people who can't afford to hire you, right? So they have to just kind of think back and ask a lot of questions about themselves from where when they were a child, what like what they like, what they just like, memorable moments to find that to find that, right? Because you're saying that you're that that's like the number one key for someone to be self-actualizing, right? Or self-fulfilled. Right. Is to be on the right path of doing something what you like to do that's passion not for money because money won't buy you that happiness it'll be fleeting is that basically what i don't want to put words in your mouth but no no that's that's basically true and and the thing of it is is that it's not that complicated it's not that difficult right because the signs are there see what ha what's happened with you and what's happened with everyone and even happened with me is when you were four or five, you kind of knew it. You knew things that you were attracted to, that you were drawn to. And then your parents start intervening. They start saying, Robert, you got to become a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> You're Jewish too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Know, right? You need to study that. this. You need to be really good at school. You need to, be, you need to do really well at math, etc." Then your teachers start telling you, yeah, you're really good at this or you're not so good at that, right? And then friends start saying, yeah, it's really cool to be this profession or not this profession. Right. And then if you're young and you're in the era of social media, which I wasn't, you know, everyone you're listening to. So that voice inside of you when you were four that told you what you love is drowned out. Totally. By your parents, by your teachers, by your peers, by your friends, by the culture at large. You have no clue who you are anymore. Right. Totally. So it's a process of winning away, winnowing away all of those voices and getting back to to what was clear to you when you were very, very young. And then we could do that with you right now. If I could figure out something, some experience you had when you were young that kind of sticks out in your mind that sort of showed what made you different and unique. Do you want to do it? Or Yeah. OK. Are you asking me that question? Yeah. Well, I would be, I was always a naturally very curious person. I would ask everybody a million questions. I'd ask them how much money they made, what are they wearing, where they bought it, you know, like how tall they are, how much they weigh. Like every question that was like inappropriate, I was like super intrigued and like really wanted to know. Nothing's really changed actually. Like that's the, like, that's like a core thing that I, even like as a four or five year old, you know, like my, I got, my, my mom and my dad, uh, my mom took me to the mall. I remember this. My mom reminds me and I left her and she couldn't find me. They called the police. They didn't <laughs> had no idea where I was. They were, everyone was looking for me for hours and they found me like asking some random woman in the dressing room, like, what does she do? How much money does she make? What does she do? You know what I mean? Like, and I was like, just like four years old, just like asking her a thousand questions. Um, yeah, that's that. So I think and look at you now. Well, yeah, look at me now. <laughs> I just I think I'm obsessively similar to you. That's my why you and I maybe get along well is that I'm also like super I, I like to analyze and observe people's like um, how they how they kind of how they are in the world. Like, like I kind of feel like I, I'm like a voyeur that way. I like try to like pick up on all these like little in, it, like idiosyncrasies, right, right. you know, if I didn't be, if I wasn't doing what I was doing, I would like to do something in like psychology right. for sure. You know? Well, maybe you will someday. 
I have, I'm 110 already. I don't uh, know when, but yeah. I mean, but that's why you're, that's, but that's why I'm like drawn to your books and to your, yeah. to, to you, because yeah. it's like very similar to the stuff that I'm, you know, that I love talking about and like yeah. I'm interested is a passion of mine yeah. so that therefore hopefully one day I'll have success in it. You know, I don't know. Oh, but come on. No, I'm but too modest. No, no, I'm still, no, but what yeah. I'm saying is I hope that, that that's, that would be the one thing I would say. So what does that say to you? Well, it says, yeah, you have a certain mindset where you're very curious. What are you curious about? It seems to be about people. People. And about. What makes know, them tick. What makes them tick. You know, kind of obsessive about that. And from that, we you could build five or six career paths that would suit you very well, which one of which you found. You know, it's a, I don't want it to sound too kind of Pollyannish, but people generally find their way to something that kind of suits them if they end up being successful. Something happens where they kind of end up in a sort of serendipitous way falling into the profession that suits them, right? Yeah. I know I did by accident in a way, and you did as well. I mean, hearing with your podcast and your ability to ask questions and kind of figure people out. I mean, I suppose in your training and your well, physical aspect, there's less of that. And maybe that's well, less satisfying for you. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's why I've kind of transitioned. Remember, like I was, I was, and the, what the, the, the thing I like most about the training stuff, remember, I fell into that business too, right? Like I was doing marketing for record labels right. and, and like I was on like a fast track. Um, business I've always loved because it's like, I think there's a huge psychology piece to this, right? Sure. Like get under, like negotiation, understanding, like the whole mm. back and forth of that. But when I got into the fitness, the part that I liked the most, it wasn't the squat or the lunge. It was the fact that like I really developed really strong, powerful relationships with the people I was working with. Right. right? right. And you become like kind of like a pseudo therapist for these people. Right. Right. Definitely. And, right. And so that's for me what okay. I love the most. And I want to see people succeed and I wanted to see people thrive. Okay. And so like when they would say something, it like gave me like a like a burst of like oh, I can, I can help you do that. Like maybe that's like a people pleasing type of thing. I don't know. But yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Well, I mean, just keep in mind one thing. If you're excited and interested, emotionally engaged in the subject, you're going to learn like 10 times faster than if you're not. Totally. Right? So that's the key thing in life to figure out what excites you to where you're going to have, you're going to learn the fastest and have that kind of ex exponential growth when you're excited by something. I tell people the story all the time. I was in college, I studied languages, I studied French for like three years, right? And then I go to France, mm -hmm. to Paris, and, I, and I, I wanna live here, I love it, it's beautiful here. I can't speak a word. The stuff I learned in college was useless. They didn't <laughs> tell you how to, how to oh, oh, you know, how to um, go to order something oh, yeah. in a restaurant or how to negotiate in a hotel. It was useless. I couldn't, it was really depressing. And then I say, okay, I want to live here. I'm going to force myself. I talk about this story in the daily laws. I'm going to force myself to learn. I want to meet people. I'm going to get over my shyness and I'm not going to hang out with any Americans at all. And I learned more in one month than in three years of university French because I was so motivated and excited to learn. So, 
that is the key for you and that's the key to your success. And it's very, very important to understand that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm looking, I'm like, I'm like, what, what's the, where, where is that story? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's very valid and very true. After you, I, I, what I did, I, what I saw when I was reading the daily laws was, and I didn't know this, you never told me this, that after you finished the law, uh, 48 laws of power, you got like, obviously you were inundated with people reaching out to you about questions about everything. And then you decided to, is this maybe I'm like, you know, uh, you can correct me when I'm when I'm wrong, but when you wrote the laws of human nature after was because you had so many people asking you about like of, of I don't know, all sorts of different things, and you realize that most people were in like they had pain and their source of pain were other people, yeah. which made you read like write the book. Yeah. So what were people asking you that kind of made well, you figure that was, out? Well, what happened was I wrote Mastery, and basically Mastery is about how to reach a level of creativity in your field, no matter what it is, to reach that kind of ultimate um, platform where you can kind of create anything interesting. And one of the components is social intelligence. I wrote a chapter in Mastery on that. Mm -hmm. And basically the idea is, you can be technically brilliant at your field. You can master all the algorithms that you want. You can be really, really good at finance and numbers. But if you're bad with people, it's all neutralized, mm -hmm. right? Because we're a social animal. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're Albert Einstein or if you're the most brilliant physicist in the world. Everything is political. Even science involves mm -hmm. politics and getting along with people. So I wrote that chapter saying, this is part of being a master, is learning how to get to the social intelligence. I got tons of emails from people saying, I love that chapter, Robert, that was my favorite chapter, but I want more. It's not enough, I need to understand more because it's really something I'm really bad at, okay? So that was one kind of funnel that was coming into my, my inbox. The other was doing my consulting and seeing all these very powerful people CEOs, top-notch athletes, people at the top of the entertainment business, they all would come to me with the same problem. They were good at the technical aspects, but they had made some ridiculously bad hire. They brought in some partner who ended up being like this toxic narcissist or this really aggressive, passive-aggressive person or this person who was just all the different kind of forms, you know, the power-hungry when mm -hmm. they didn't seem to, and they made their lives miserable. How do I get out of it? What do I do? Okay, well, first of all, let's try and figure out how you not get into these situations. Right. And it became very clear to me that people are increasingly not so good at understanding human nature and psychology. You can credit perhaps the internet, perhaps all the time we're spending virtually and not interacting with people, however you want to define it. There is a problem in this world and it inflicts the highest, most powerful people in the world. They have these incredible blind spots, right? Right. They're taken in. So imagine if you're a boss, you're a powerful person. What do you hear all the time? You hear everybody saying how great you are, right? They're trying, they're, they're kind of emphasizing what you already think about yourself. You, you, your idea, oh, that's wonderful, it's brilliant, et cetera, et cetera. And you're not getting reality, right? Right. And so you're not learning, you're kind of close to that, you're kind of, um, feeding off your own press, you're sort of believing, believing the hype, what, believing what people say about you, right? Right. And then, you know, you, you're kind of getting into that, and then you hire somebody who's very charming, 
who appears to be very ingratiating and says all the wonderful things about your, feeds your ego. And you're kind of blinded and dazzled by that and you hire them. And then you discover this other side of them and you're in real trouble and you call Robert Greene and you ask, you know, what can I do? How can I get rid of this person? What's the best way to fire them? How can I deal with this toxic person who's now my partner, who now controls 50% of my company? How do I deal with the owner of this basketball team who's bad mouthing me in the press so that my price will go down, etc.? right? How do you deal with these inter human interactions that people, nobody trains you when you, when you leave, you know, university, you'll learn all things about, you know, the most, the most um, mundane or the most trivial, mm -hmm. you know, subjects that are not practical. And then you enter the work. Well, nobody trains you in how to deal with people and how to look at political situations. And so no wonder that, you know, this is a blind spot and that I wanted to write a book to help people on that. Right. And how, so do you, is it your belief then that, first of all, so is, is there social intelligence, emotional intelligence, do you think it's more important than academics for someone's, oh, but for someone's true success in life, personal and professional? Most definitely. Um, I mean, uh, Academic success doesn't really mean much. Mm -hmm. It doesn't translate. I mean, you can list all of the famous successful people, including Albert Einstein. Right. Or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, who were total dropouts, who were not good, not successful at all in an academic setting. Because, you know, that's just, they're rebels. They're people who, who don't fit into the system. They don't like kind of the, the, the style of learning that's emphasized in the university. They're more creative. Universities are kind of like factories mm -hmm. and they have certain, they teach you certain ways of thinking. And if you're someone who thinks differently, you're not encouraged in that atmosphere. So I remember when I wrote Mastery, one of the people I interviewed was Paul Graham, who started a company called Y Combinator, which is turned into a billion dollar business that he eventually sold. And basically it was an apprenticeship school for entrepreneurs. He would admit the 30 best entrepreneurs around the world, and he would teach them how to create a startup. Mm -hmm. And then he would own 10% of their startup or whatever it is. And that's where he made a fortune. And how did he judge? He would get 10,000 applications and he would choose like 30. And he says, the moment he got an application that said, Yale, I went to Yale, put it in the trash, <laughs> right? He might interview them, but he says, what he looked for was the level of determination that somebody had, how he could be criticized, how much they wanted it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not a question of, of your academic, your intellectual background. It's more of kind of an emotional intelligence mm -hmm. type thing. You name people, that's interesting, because you named the people I would never have named, which, it, I mean, Bill Gates and uh, Steve Jobs, who are obviously extraordinarily, Elon Musk, they don't... They are, they don't have the, oh, Elon has it, but Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, they're not, they were dropouts, right? But they also don't really have what, you know, you think of as the emotional social intelligence either, right? They're kind of, that's why they are rebels, right? They're brilliant. What kind of, what kind of intelligence is that? Or is that just like kind of anomalies in life? Even Jeff Bezos, these are people who are not exactly, Emotion, their EQ level, I'm sure, is not like off the charts. 
I don't know anything about Jeff Bezos. No, neither so. do I, but I... Um, but I do know Steve Jobs. I mean, a lot of these people are, I, I have to say, we're probably on the spectrum a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and uh, Steve Jobs was a terrible manager, his first iteration at Apple. Right. He was very aggressive and gruff. He didn't listen to people. He had no empathy at all. And people hated him. And he basically got fired. And he kind of went through uh, uh, those desert years in the 90s. And then he got hired back on Apple. And he kind of learned what was wrong about his style. And he kind of softened it a bit. And although he was a perfectionist, and though he was like someone who couldn't stand if people didn't work as hard as he worked, he wasn't nearly as gruff and intimidating as he'd been in the first go. He'd softened it and people genu- genuinely liked him. He was still, he still had the highest standards. He still could be a bastard, right? Mm-hmm. But he was easier to get along with and he had learned, you know, he was able to grow and, and, and change himself. So he got better with it. Yeah. Is there, do you think, is there a difference between street smarts, uh, emotional intelligence or emotional smarts like is there a difference or are they pretty much interchangeable well i don't really know what exactly we're saying here about emotional intelligence i'm thinking like reading people understand kind of empathizing with somebody kind of having the ability to socially interact in a very comfortable way making people feel comfortable um, all the stuff that we're talking about, I think your, your books talk about it too. Like it's, it's not just being able to go, you know, what's the square root of 170,000, you know, I mean, it's the, all the other stuff, street smarts, you know, it's about like, like it's kind of similar. That's why I think, are they similar? Or is it more like, is it street smarts more like hustling or more getting one over? Like it's, it sounds, it seems like a, they're, they're similar, but not really. I just want to say, you're the expert. Well, I know, like, um, working with 50. He's street smart. He's street smart. He was a hustler, but he has very high emotional intelligence. He's very sensitive to people. He's very good in a room situation right. as a boss in negotiations with very powerful people. He reads the room. He, he understands where people are. He understands their strengths and their weaknesses. But that not every hustler not every person with street smarts has that because you can get along just by sheer aggression right mm-hmm. um and so he kind of learned that way i think a lot of it had to do with his mother who died when she was very young and taught him some basic lessons and kind of ingrained in him this sort of the sort of soft side that he had even though his mother was a very tough person 50 has this kind of soft side to him sort of an introverted side so I don't think I can generalize on, on people with street smarts. So I worked for a man named Dove Charney, who was the CEO of American Apparel. Mm-hmm. That guy had definite street smarts. He had very low emotional intelligence, right? Interesting. Why? When, how, how does that work? Make, like, give me an example of what's high street smarts, low emotional intelligence. Well, he was a consummate hustler. Okay. He knew how to charm people. He knew how to make them think that he was... Absolutely brilliant. And he, he was very good at it. And he is very charismatic, right? But he had very low empathy for people. Mm. He had very little understanding of what makes them tick, of what of whether how if his words, if his brash words, how they affected people, whether they worked for him or against him. 
you know, he was often his own worst enemy. Right. And so he was very good at pushing people around, pushing their buttons, kind of bullying them, kind of intimidating them and charming them at the same time, doing all these kind of games. And he was very, very good at it. But ultimately he hit a wall because he didn't really have great levels of empathy. Mm -hmm. He really didn't understand that sometimes that game has limits to it. You have to kind of be softer. You have to learn how to seduce people. You have to learn what their interests are. Sometimes you have to delegate. Sometimes you have to take responsibility, admit that you're wrong, etc. These are things that he wasn't very good at. So I can't really generalize in that because I've seen both sides. Well, I'm glad that you just brought up the seducing because I want to ask you about that. What would you say? What's your definition of someone who's a what what makes somebody a really, really good at seduction? Well, the main thing is, is that you're attuned to other people. So um, you if, if I'm thinking of you and not me, if I'm not insecure and I'm thinking of you, what is it that makes that makes Jennifer Cohen tick? What is her life like? What is her world like? What are her weaknesses? What are her strengths? What was she like as a child? What were her parents like? What is her mind like, right? That's what a great seducer is. They're able to get outside of themselves mm -hmm. and into the world, the spirit of the other person. Now that can be for purposes of kind of an overt manipulation and a seduction, but it can also be for a genuine, you know, uh, affair, a love or whatever. But the ability to get outside yourself and the converse of that is your insecurity. That's what I would call anti-seduction. You're so self-absorbed that when you're dating someone on that first date, all you're thinking about is, do they like me? Am I saying the right things? Am I being awkward or not? The other person is picking that up and they, the signal is you're not really paying attention to them. You're not really listening to them. So think about your own life and how rare it is that people ever give you individualized attention, right? Mm -hmm. You go through your life, 99% of your encounters, it's as if people are dealing with someone else. They're not thinking about you, about what makes you tick, about your life, your problems, etc. We go through life and we're so hungry for that moment where a person actually connects to who we are and actually is interested in who we are. It's so rare, right? So you give people that feeling that you're, excited by them, that you're interested in their story, right? Mm -hmm. And it has an amazing effect. And that's what makes a great seducer. The second quality is a lack of defensiveness. The kind of two go together. But the fact that you're not worried about yourself, you're comfortable with who you are. You're comfortable in your body, in your physical presence. You're comfortable in, you know, in, in your mannerisms, in your ability to get along with people. That comfort is because we humans kind of respond to these things in a nonverbal way. Mm -hmm. It kind of relaxes people. It puts them in the right non-resistant mood, the non-defensive mood. Whereas if you're all insecure and, and defensive mm -hmm. and worried about everything people say, and is she really saying that? Is that what does she mean by that? Is, she, is that a diss, et cetera? That's extremely off-putting. It reveals the self-absorption level. So the ability to be open, non-defensive and totally interested in the other person is immensely seductive. And that's when I talk in the book in the art of seduction of the rake, the consummate male seducer. For that day or week that he's interested in you because he's only interested in you for a day or a week or a month. Right. You are the whole world. 
He is completely yours. He's interested in everything you have to say. He's buying you the gifts that are so perfectly suited to who you are. He's taking you to the places he knows what's going to surprise and excite you. What woman can't fall for that? Because how rare is that? Mm -hmm. And then he's gone after a month or, or a couple of months. But that's the power that a rake has. So those are the qualities, the two qualities that a, that a seducer has. I can mention others, but those are the main ones. Well, I think a couple of things. It sounds like some, for someone to be a really good seducer, they have to have a high EQ. Right? I mean, you have to be able to be like, to kind of be able to like pick up on certain cues and tones. Wouldn't you say that's kind of, they're like, they kind of go hand in hand? Well, I mean... The word, I guess I don't know the word EQ as well. Yeah. But I just put it in other language and put it in, in my own English. In this to do so, so. Which is that you're highly attuned to the other person. You're picking up their signals. So you say something and you know that body language reveals a lot. Right. And you say something a little bit controversial to kind of pick at them a little bit. And they laugh, but there's a discomfort there in their laugh. All right. That's something that they don't like. There's some, I pick that up. Or you say something and their eyes light up and they laugh uncontrollably and the whole face lights up. All right. That's something that, that they love that's, that excites them. You remember that and it, you register that and you're going to return to it and you're going to use that kind of information. That kind of sensitivity where you're totally absorbed in the other person. Call it emotional mm, I see, intelligence. But yeah. I don't know, but it's. It's just the ability to get outside of yourself. And it's extremely therapeutic to be able to do that. that so what happens if you become after uh, over time, right? Because can you be a good seducer if there's too much familiarity, if you know the person too well? No. Like what happens if you've been married for 10 years, 15 years with oh. the same person? I mean, well, is there really well, the that, art of seduction anymore? Well, that's a different story. I mean, you, <laughs> like, friends is okay because I have a chapter on friend to lover, which is a very good strategy. Right, right. To talk but, about that, but, we could talk about that. That's well, a good one. But no, I mean, that's basically that a very good seduction strategy is to actually become someone's friend. First, right? First. And then, you and although, you know, some people think it's hard to have male and female friendships, but that's not true at all. Right. It's actually a very interesting and very exciting relationship to have, even if it doesn't lead to being a lover, because um, you're men, and it goes for women as well, who are not comfortable with the opposite sex, if we're talking about straight mm -hmm. people. Um, you know, it's that you don't understand the opposite sex. You don't understand their way of thinking, their motivation. It's like another country. They're like, they could be from another planet, which somebody wrote a book about, right? Right. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. right. So, and a lot of times men who grew up with sisters don't have that problem. They're comfortable. Mm -hmm. Whereas boys who only had brothers or had no sister, it's a little different situation. So becoming a friend with a woman, because guys have more of this problem than women do is a very good way to understand women's psychology mm -hmm. to get more comfortable with them. So it has a benefit even if it doesn't go from friend to lover. But the idea that you took the time to become their friend and then you found that moment of weakness where you then seduce them is very powerful and is one of the easiest seductions that you can have. And I talk about that in that book in a particular chapter. But when it comes to married couples, 
that's a different story. You know, I've been in a relationship for, for many years. 20 years, right? Something like that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, st- we stopped counting at some point. Yeah, I know. Um, so, Funny. you know, I, ta- I have a chapter in that in Art of Seduction about that. It's not that you d- are going to keep seducing them 20 years later. That'll be tiring. Right. And it'll be too predictable. That's what I'm saying. Does it, it doesn't work. How does no, it work? No, it does work. So every now and then you go back to your original strategies, to your original interest, right? So if people become too familiar, if it's always about being at home, turning on Netflix, getting in your pajamas, having pizza that you've ordered out you know, from <laughs> wherever, etc., right? There's no magic anymore. Mm-hmm. And the number one complaint that I get from women in this area is that he's not seducing me anymore. They don't use that word seducing, but it really means what they mean is he doesn't give me the kind of attention that he used to give me. Right. And men will complain about this as well, right? So you don't want to give the other person the idea that you take them for granted because that's the worst feeling in the world, right? You were so interested in me when you wanted sex Mm -hmm. five years ago, but now that you've gotten it, you don't really care that much. Well, it doesn't say very much about me, does it? All right. So you want to give them little hits of that magic again. So every now and then you surprise them. You take them out to a restaurant that you've never been to before that has some, it's like a surprise that shows that you thought about it. You put some effort into it. You give them a gift that's not for their birthday or anything else, but that's like something you've never given before that shows a degree of thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. You take them on a trip somewhere that is, you know, exotic, exciting. You do some of the things that you did when you were actively trying to seduce. I don't know. I'm not going to say every three months. I don't want to put a number to it. But at least, you know, every now and then you revert to that. So you give the other person the feeling that there's still some mystery involved. There's still some fantasy involved. It's not completely gone flat. Right. Right. What 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 element of lust is involved? Right. Because do you need an element of like sexual chemistry or lust to be a part of it for that art of seduction to even work? Right. Because if I'm you know friends with you know Joe Blow and I have no attraction to him, no matter how much we're going to be friends and we hang out together, it's not happening. So isn't there that whole element there, like where lust kind of is a major or chemistry, like sexual chemistry or physical chemistry take a, take part? It, it, it depends on, 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 on the people involved. I mean, sometimes, and it happens, at first you think there is no kind of sexual chemistry. You're not really that interested in that person. But a really great seducer can make you interested mm-hmm. in them. That's but true. But there isn't any interest before. But the, the lust, the physical attraction is very important but it also can work against you because um, the goal of seduction isn't necessarily sex because you can get sex, you know, go to a bar and pick up a woman or a man in a bar and go have sex. There's no seduction involved because you're both, you're, mm-hmm. you're basically satisfying this kind of animal urge that you have in the moment. Seduction is a process of making the other person fall in love of making them fantasize about you. So that when you're not there, when you're not in front of them, they're thinking about you. Mm -hmm. They're wondering about you. They're wondering about your personality. Who are you really? And they're excited and they're interested and they're intrigued like like you're a character in a novel, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so if the physical attraction is too strong, it almost works against you in that sense. It's like, you know, the classic seduction of a man of a woman, the woman was kind of playing a little bit hard to get, right? Mm -hmm. And was trying to disguise, was trying to, you know, postpone the sexual component. That would make the man more excited, right, right. more interested, and he would try other things and it would eventually. So definitely the physical component is is very important, but it's not absolutely essential, no. When you're looking for like a true like partner in life, right? Not just a fling, like you want to find, like, are there certain, like, how do you pick well, right? Because people you end up picking not very, not, they usually use the lust or they use their, the, their chemistry physically to kind of point them in that certain direction, right? right? But, and both female, female people do that, girls do that too. How, uh, how do we kind of stop doing that so we pick p partners who are appropriate for us, who we can actually have a long-term relationship with? Well, there has to be a connection that's deeper than the physical connection, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so one thing is, you know, can I sit across the table from this person 10 years down the line and have an interesting conversation with them, right? Do we... It's not a matter of we, we believe the same politics or we read the same books or that our ideas are the same because that's a superficial thing. But there's a kind of connection that goes deeper than that, right? Mm -hmm. Where when you talk, there's a kind of a sparkle to it and there's surprises to it. Mm -hmm. And things that that person say kind of, wow, that's really interesting, right? If somebody can do that, then you can imagine in 10 years to still be doing that and that you'll enjoy sitting across the table and having interesting conversations with them. So the connection between you, the two of you has to be deeper than just sort of the superficial physical attraction and the superficial things where we like the same political figures, we like the same musicians, et cetera. Those are superficial signs. You're looking for a deeper, deeper connection that kind of goes to the core of your character. And it has to do with true love and a lot of times a lot of the stuff has to do with your childhood who you um your relationship to your parents to your siblings and the person that you really fall in love with kind of fills a role that goes back to to a, a figure in your past that you're not even aware of there's some sort of deep deep connection you also want to look at somebody's character i mean believe it or not um if, if all they're interested in is money, right? And you're not, that's not a big value. So values are very important here on that level. That's something I'm leaving out. So if right. they're only interested in money, you know, and you're not really that type of person, it's going to really wear on you where that, where that value is continually coming up and you're always arguing about, you know, do we have enough money? Are you, are you making enough money in your job, et cetera? So you want to look at a connection on the values levels as well. Um, just go beyond the surface and don't don't let the the sexual component be the main criteria that you. I I feel like I mean I think people fool themselves a lot of times, right? They don't want to believe that sometimes they they think no 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 I really really are this way. They they try to like they rationalize someone's bad behavior. Yeah, because they want it to work and, and all right. those things, right? Um, is there any type, I mean, you actually kind of explained it. Um, 
it's like, what would you say the biggest mistake is when people are trying to find love? Are they just, are they just looking for the, is it because they are rationalizing red flags that are appearing or? Well, um, what's the number one mistake people? Well, they're kind of going back to one of the first things I said, they're sort of judging too much on appearances. On appearance. And they're not looking at who the person really is. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, you're falling in love with the kind of mirage that people are giving you the kind of so a person that's interested in getting sex out of you or whatever <laughs> is going to be presenting a certain kind of character. They're going to be wearing a mask. Right. Okay. And you're falling in love with the mask. And then six months later, you discover that they're not the person you thought they were. Right. Can you name a couple other types of seducers? You said the rake already. Name a couple other ones. Well, the equivalent of the rake is a siren. That's a woman who... So the rake and the siren are the most archetypal because no man on this planet can resist a siren and no woman on this planet can resist a rake. Give oh, me an example difficult. of each. Is it Marilyn Monroe, for example? Yeah, she was definitely a siren. I mean, she and, I put, she and Cleopatra is kind of the quintessence of that. Right. It's a woman who exudes this kind of raw kind of sexual energy. She's very comfortable with her body. She knows all of the weaknesses of men. Men are very visually oriented. Mm -hmm. Men get very easily bored. Mm -hmm. So she knows how to create drama and how to to always surprise him, etc. And he and she knows how to make the man chase because men like to hunt and chase. Mm -hmm. At least a lot of men do. Right. So. It's absolutely irresistible. And there's an element of danger involved. So falling in love with this woman, I might lose myself. I might, something might happen to me. There's a little bit of transgressive element. That's what sort of makes it very exciting. Because the siren from the Greek myth were these half women, half bird creatures oh. who would sing on cliffs. And their song was so beautiful the men would like go crazy and then they would try and find the siren and they would drown. So it, going after the siren in a primal sense meant you were going to kill yourself. There was like a suicidal wish. So that's the siren. Then I have like the dandy. The dandy is a man or a woman that has an androgynous edge to them. There's the touch of the masculine in the woman, like a Marlena Dietrich, like a Madonna mm -hmm. or Josephine Baker. There's a touch of the feminine in the man, like a Rudolph Valentino or a Mick Jagger or a David mm. Bowie. And that kind of crossing is very exciting to a lot of people. It's kind of a, a, a taboo here. We're seeing things kind of mixed up a little bit and it appeals to a lot of people. That has very power. There's the natural, someone who's very spontaneous, almost like a child who never quite grew up. And... Um, and is very comfortable with themselves. It's got a mischievous edge to them. Mm, mm -hmm. And I kind of talk about Charlie Chaplin. There's the coquette. The coquette is probably the most devilish seducer of all. Traditionally, it was a woman, but it could be a man. Like who? Who, was, who would that be? Like a coquette, the coquette one. I can't remember who I have in the story. I believe I have uh, Pauline Bonaparte. Um, I mean, well, I don't, you'd have to give What are a, you? Huh? What are you, huh? <laughs> what would you be? Where would you fall under that? Well, when I was in my 20s, when I, was, you were, yeah. I was a rake. You were the rake, okay. Um, but the coquette is a woman or a man who blows hot and cold. 
They're very excited. They're very interested in you. You get really wound up by them, you know, and wound up by them. And then suddenly they're not answering your phone calls anymore. They've turned cold. Mm. They're not so interested in you. They're looking at other people when you're together. Well, what happened? What did I do wrong? Well, something's wrong with me. And then like a week later, they're hot again. And they do this a couple of times and you're so hooked. You, you, there's right. nothing in, in the world's ever going to save you. They've got their hooks in you. Because they keep you on your toes. Yeah. So um, these are some of the types. There are nine of them. That's, I, I, yeah, that's an, that I like. I I like all those when people. I love when you people put things in categories because you can like understand <laughs> it better anyway. But I like that. Um, I, I feel like kind of I've asked you a bunch of questions here. Is there anything that you want to say or talk about besides get my book, The Daily Laws? Well, the the the, the idea behind the Daily Laws is kind of simple. It's you know I'm trying. People ask me, is there one thing that What's the source of power in this world? Well, if you could say a quality mm -hmm. that is like the essence of it that I could that I could learn from, and I would say it's your attitude towards life. Your attitude is how you look at the world. Some people are optimistic and adventurous and open. Some people are closed and anxious and resentful. And you can take somebody who's got that kind of attitude, like an optimist and a pessimist, and put them in the same circumstances and they see completely different things. So your attitude is your lens on the world, how you see things, how you judge things, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of defines your experiences. Yeah. Your attitude kind of will define what happens to you. And the attitude that you want, the one attitude that's the most powerful in this world is a realistic attitude. In other words, you're going to see things as they are. You're not going to be looking at the hype or the bullshit or the appearance. So when it comes to yourself, you're going to look deep inside and you're going to figure out who you are as opposed to all the things you've learned from other people, as opposed to all the illusions you have. You're going to understand what makes you tick, what makes you unique, what excites you, what you were meant to accomplish in life. Very powerful. With other people, you're not going to project your own emotions on them. You're going to see into them who they are, what who, what motivates them, what defines them, right? Mm -hmm. Very powerful. When it comes to the world, you're going to see what the trends are, what's going on in your career, where it's headed in three or four years. What is the zeitgeist? What's, what's going on in this world right now? What kind of period are we living through? You're able to do that. You're going to be able to kind of be ahead of the curve sometimes with the trends, the things that you do, the things that you create. Also very powerful. So this realistic attitude in those three directions has immense potential for you, right? Mm -hmm. It's the subject of all of my books in different angles, mm -hmm. but it's scattered over thousands of pages, right? It can mm -hmm. be very frustrating for some readers. Yes. So mm -hmm. I've taken all of that. I've taken like the kind of the greatest hits or however you want to say it, the passages that, that kind of illuminate one angle of that realistic attitude. And in fact, I have 366 of those angles having to do with your career, having to do with yourself, having to do with people and toxic people, having to do with the world, etc. And I'm giving you a daily meditation for you. And the idea is that I want this attitude to become your attitude, the way you look at the world. But it can't happen overnight. I need to kind of immerse you in this other way of looking at the mm -hmm. world. So every day... You're going to be looking at one of these facets of that attitude. And it's going to be only a page long, so you don't have to read very much. 
and it's going to introduce to you an idea that you may not have thought of before about people, about yourself, etc. And you're going to meditate on that. And you're going to go through this day by day by day by day by day. And slowly, the idea is if it succeeds, you will begin to internalize this way of looking at things. It will get under your skin. It will kind of change how you, how you think in a very elemental way. That's what the book is designed for. I know because I meditate every single day. I I've been know. doing it for 11 years. What kind of meditation do you do? I do Zen meditation. Zen meditation. What is yeah. that? What kind of meditation is that? How it's um, trying to empty the mind. And, and it's hard to describe, but it's basically shutting off the, the chatty mind mm -hmm. and arriving at kind of the original consciousness that we have when we were children, when we were born, what's known as original mind. And kind of immersing yourself in reality as opposed to words, etc. This is how the world is. It's Zen is very hard to actually verbalize, which is the problem. And, and the, some of the greatest writers who write their koans, you can't understand them. They're so unintelligible, unintelligible. Mm -hmm. So um, it's hard to put into words, but it's basically returning you to a form of consciousness that you had when you were very young that is more natural and that is seeing things as they are as opposed to the, the verbal constructions. Anyway, in my meditation, I will have a thought and, um, and then I will notice there's no like direct effect. You don't finish your meditation, go, wow, blah, blah, blah. It just kind of calms you down. But I will notice over the course of months and years that I will do things that I would have never done before I meditated. And there's no conscious way that I'm doing this. I don't react to people. I don't get upset when they say something. I write that angry email. I put it in a drawer. I don't send it. I, I step back. I detach myself from the moment. I have a calmness. It got under my skin unconsciously because day by day by day, I've internalized this other way of being, this other way of thinking. So I'm not saying mine is, is like Zen Buddhism, but it's going to get under your skin. It's going to change how you think and how you act in ways you're not even aware of through this kind of daily practice. So that's the point of the book. Yeah. No, I, I can't even believe that you're able to like condense it to this amount of to one book. Right. Because there's there's so many there's everything from human nature, the laws of power, and it's very easy to un digest and understand. It's very easy. Yeah. And uh, I, I like it. I, then, I really liked it. And there also um, each month begins with an essay in which I kind of talk about my personal experience, where my experience in the world kind of informs it, which I've never done in any of my books before because I never talk about myself. But I talk about experiences I've had that kind of each month has a theme. Yeah. And I sort of explain this is what I learned, my own experiences as a seducer, my own experiences <laughs> in the work world right. that led to my writing books, et cetera, et cetera. No, I think it's, I, I really, I mean, listen, it's already like a number one New York, it's like a number one bestseller on Amazon anyway. Is it on the New York Times yet or? We won't know for a while. It's hard to crack the New York Times because we're, it's on the uh, self-help list. And that's, there's like 8 million books on that list. So we're hoping, I mean, I made it before, but. 
You've made it okay. all the time. Haven't they all been oh. New York Times bestsellers? Mm. Like before they're even out, they're like on the New York Times bestsellers list. I mean, this one will be there too. I am sure of it, Robert, please. I mean, you're being okay. very, you're being very humble right now. Um, so people can buy the daily laws on Amazon. They can go to Barnes and Noble. Where they can find, where can they find you on Instagram? Give us all your info. All right. I've been trained like a, a trained seal to kind of remember <laughs> this because I'm really bad at it. I know. At Robert Green official is, is the oh, that's hashtag. Right. That's your hashtag. Um, oh no, it's your Instagram account. Well, it's all of it. At okay. Robert Green official, you will find Instagram. You will find TikTok. <laughs> You're on TikTok now? No way. What are you doing on TikTok? Little bits and pieces of Go your... Look. Oh my gosh. Go look. I'm going to have to. Oh my gosh. And then you'll find my Facebook, my Twitter, and uh, my website with some of my ancient blog posts. That's from, awesome. And... Uh, Anything else you possibly would want to know. So at Robert Green official is where to go. And on tic go to TikTok and find Robert Green doing some dance with his books in his hand. No, 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 no. Okay, I'm going to go find you and see what you're doing over there. And you're it's, also working on another book. I am indeed. I mean, every time I speak to you, you're writing. So what's yeah. what is when is that book going to be out? In about... 2048. <laughs> I was going to say, that's even sooner than I thought. Oh, here you are. You're on TikTok. Oh, my God. And you have like a huge following on I do, TikTok. I do. Oh, my God. You have like 300,000 followers almost. Are you kidding me? No way. How do you have this? When did you start this? Well, um, recently, there was a guy uh, who interviewed me on Sunday, actually, a really nice guy named Lawrence Chodo, who um, did a TikTok video about 48 Laws of Power about five or six months ago. And the sales of my book skyrocketed. Really? And they haven't come down since then. And we all go, whoa, TikTok can promote a book like this? Whoa, that's amazing. And this other woman, Rachel Peterson, who will be interviewing me in a couple of weeks. She did the same thing and the book just exploded. So we go, this is a tool that I got to pay attention to. And I have people who work for me because I don't do it all myself. Right. And we're basically taking excerpts from all of my interviews, like my interviews here now. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and then me kind of dancing in my underwear. No, <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I'm where's scared. that video? I want to see that. I <laughs> uh, know, just. Uh, oh my God. God. So yeah, we're 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 doing the TikTok thing because you're like a TikTok star. I not cannot quite. I cannot believe how many okay. followers you have. That is crazy. So how so <laughs> they've been doing this for how long then? Like how long have we had this page for? I'd say about three or four months. Oh my god. Not much longer than that. You're like a TikTok influencer. <laughs> 300,000 is nothing these days. I know, but listen, I know. However, still, yeah. it's still funny that I see you on TikTok. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's who knew? Who knew exactly? Go follow Robert on TikTok. God, <laughs> him and all the other 13 year olds and everybody else. It's true. It's become like a huge medium. I feel like more people now are. Are more, you on TikTok? I just started like two weeks ago. There you go. Yeah, but I have like no followers because I'm just literally, I just started. So will you follow me? Sure. Okay, go follow me. on. Maybe that you'll you'll get me a couple of I'll followers. I'll be your first follower. Yeah, please. I think I have like 80 followers. Literally, I just started. So, oh. What? My assistant Jackson just uh, messaged me. You've landed on the New York Times bestseller list. 
No way. He just did that now? Yeah. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. I didn't know if it would happen, honestly, because... We just talked with like two seconds ago. Are you serious? What did he say? I, I think my agent just called me. That's why your agent called you. Can you yeah. call your agent? Let's see. I'm going to hear his, his voicemail. Uh, Robert, it's Michael, and I wanted to just congratulate you on the bestseller, which is truly a, a wonderful um, achievement. You, the list that you're on is one of the most competitive. It's a tough time for books, and you are triumphing. And congratulations for another bestseller. I think this is our second one together. It's our third one. I'm very proud. It's our fourth one. I spent some time with you. And thank you and Ryan for everything you've done. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. You just got on the New York Times best, like just now? I guess just so. Oh. That, makes, that makes me very happy. Oh my actually. God, that's so amazing. Do you want to celebrate? Should I get some champagne? What, what no, do I do? I, 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 well, I don't know. I gotta, okay, I got to do a story about this right now. Okay, I, I, I'm like dying right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. All right, I have to say, as him, Robert, and I are doing the podcast for this book, he just landed on the New York Times bestsellers list. He just found out right now. Congratu congratulations. Thank you. Thank okay, you. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, my God, that's so exciting. Oh, my God. Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle, from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast, powered by Habitnest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.